0: to turn with me to Genesis 21. I'll pull my water out here. I, I have a cold, or have gotten over a cold, and then yesterday I mowed a field, and that didn't help uh, with allergies and such. So <clears throat> I feel like I'm in a bit of a cave talking. Kind of sounds nice and deep. I don't know. I should be on the radio or something. We're going to look at the first seven seven verses of Genesis 21, and I, and I have to say that this is a, a welcome change from the last two, three weeks when we've been looking at chapters 19 and 20 that tell us uh, of oppressive sin and darkness, judgment. And it's really nice to uh, come to a place where we are going to be looking at joy. And uh, after 25 years of waiting, from chapter 12 now to chapter 21, Abram and Sarah, waiting on the promise of a child, that promise comes to its fruition, and we read in verse 1, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Joy, pure, unbridled, laugh out loud, joy that is what we have before us in our text today is there anything more joyful than when a child is born and is there anything more joyful than when a child is born to parents who were so long unable to have children Isaac's name means laughter which is appropriate because Sarah's laughter of unbelief back in chapter 18 is here turned into the laughter of the promise kept in chapter 21. This laughter from the heart down deep from her very soul explodes uh, into laughter and praise to God who has accomplished the impossible in her life. Now I think everyone will concur with me when I say, I love joy. I mean who doesn't love to be joyful and have joy in their lives all human beings love to have a reason to rejoice we want to enjoy our lives and the word enjoy you know is obviously a word that we get from the word joy our lives are filled with the pursuit of joy we look for it everywhere in every circumstances. We want our relationships to be a source of joy. And we notice it when they are not. We want our leisure time and our hobbies to bring us joy. Else we would not invest in them. We follow a football team. And it brings us joy when they win. But if they lose too much, we're just not going to care anymore. Because it hurts too much. We're not getting joy out of it. We look to our possessions sometimes to bring us joy. The new car, the new dress, the newly decorated house. Well, the problem with finding our joy in these things, as we've all experienced, is that they do not last. Circumstances change. The car gets old. We get older. Relationships change. And sometimes those relationships break down. People die. We die. Joy is fleeting and disappears and the search goes on. Joy in things and circumstances and people ultimately goes away. Well, what if you could have an infinite joy that never goes away? A a buoyancy to your life that causes you to rejoice even in the midst of difficulties in life. The Bible tells us about an infinite joy that will never go away. Now I'm not talking about that saccharine, sweet, fake happiness that some Christians put on. You know, you ever met somebody like that? They're just so they seem so fake. Fake happy. Uh, I'm not talking about that sort of fake happiness. I'm talking about a deep sense of satisfaction, delight, and pleasure that exists no matter what the circumstances are. Even though you may not be laughing on the outside, you may be even going through a difficult time, there's still this sense of joy in your life, an undergirding pleasure and delight that holds you up. If we would look out at the beach uh, this morning, we would probably see some buoys floating out there, marking the channel or what have you. Uh, they float, buoys, that's what they're for. You know, They float out there. They don't sink And even when the storms come, they're they're unsinkable. Now, this joy the Bible talks about makes your life like a buoy, unsinkable by the storms of life. The the key, though, is the object of your joy. When your joy is in an infinite or in a finite, limited thing or person, like a car or a dress or even another person... uh, well, then your joy in that thing or person will also be limited and finite. But when your joy is in an infinite, unlimited object whose every characteristic is good, and then you can never exhaust the delight and joy you find in that object. And it can never be taken away from you. And because your joy is not in the created things of this world... When your circumstances are negative, you still have joy. See, For example, if your delight is to be financially comfortable in your life, you know, that's, that really makes you happy when you have money in the bank. Well, your joy is going to disappear when, those, when the money runs out, when your financial comforts are taken away, or when you die. But if your chief joy in this world is the Lord, then even when you lose everything, your joy is not affected because your joy is not in your money. It's in the Lord. And that's how joy in the Lord makes your life like a buoy. If your joy is in your health, if your joy is in your circumstances, uh, if your joy is in your material possessions, you're sure to sink one day because those things will certainly be taken away from you. And when that happens, you sink because you have lost your source of joy. That's why the Bible tells us repeatedly, over and over and over again, to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice, Paul told the Philippians. Finding your joy in the Lord is commanded by Scripture over and over again. Well, that would seem, I mean, I'm giving you a straightforward thing. You know, find your joy in the Lord. Uh, and, not in the other, and that seems a bit cut and dried. It's a little more complicated than that. If it weren't, uh, we'd all have mastered it by now. If it were simple, we wouldn't need to be re- repeatedly told to rejoice in the Lord. The problem is our hearts are fickle. Now, you remember, and maybe you don't, uh, maybe you didn't have the same experience that I had, but when you're a kid in school and you and your classmates started getting interested in the opposite sex, uh, when I was growing up, you would write uh, a a girl, in my case, uh, a note. And we're talking about elementary school here, we're not talking about high school. I love you, do you love me, yes or no? And you draw boxes under the yes or no and Check one, you know. You'd have to give them the instructions. Check one, because sometimes they wouldn't check one. <laughs> so if you got a yes, then you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And of course, it didn't last long because we were children. It, it, it was like a game. Children are fickle. You know, a new girl came to class. You know, she's cute and interesting and different than all the other girls, so I'm going to ask her to be my girlfriend. So, you know, we're fickle. That was silly to do back then, and it was probably very unhealthy as well. But we're still the same today in lots of ways. We we find our we do sometimes find our joy and delight in the Lord as Christians, but but our hearts get drawn away by other objects of affection, by other people or experiences that we want to have. Uh, our hearts are fickle, like a school child. And we must continually go back to the Lord to remember why we should delight in Him so much and, and you know, why we should delight in Him above all others. And we have to go back and look at Him and to see Him again and to say, yes, that's why He's worth more than this car or worth more than having money in the bank or worth more than even my health. He's worth more than everything. So this morning, my goal is for us to laugh the laughter of joy in the Lord, to actually experience that this morning. Now, we probably won't be doing that out loud, because we're Presbyterians, and you know, you just can't do that. But maybe in your heart, to recapture the laughter, the joy in the Lord. I want us to, to try to do that this morning. Uh, to rehearse and maybe rediscover the goodness and mercy of the Lord to us, as the Bible tells us, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now this passage gives us uh, reasons to rejoice in the Lord, along with Sarah in the birth of Isaac. She said, verse 6 I believe it is, God has made laughter for me. Now hopefully uh, we'll be able to say along with her, God has made laughter for me as we think about the importance of the birth of Isaac and the nature of the birth of Isaac. Now, first of all, the importance of the birth of Isaac. Why is this particular birth so important? This Old Testament birth, you know, thousands of years ago, why is it important to us today? Well, I noticed a couple of articles out in the blogosphere this week, you know, blogosphere. I've just started a blog, so I've got all the terms down. I'm way behind because I think people don't blog anymore. It's passe now, but I'm a little behind the times. I feel I'm getting older and, uh, you know, I'm starting to, the technology's passing me by and stuff. So forgive me if, uh, young people, if you think that's a funny term, blogosphere. But uh, some people had written a couple of articles that were on the internet this week and uh, they were talking about the use of the term gospel issue. And it's a, an interesting discussion. You know, we we use that term, or maybe you don't, but preachers do. Uh, we would We might use that term to describe something that is imperative to be believed. It's a gospel issue. For example, you might say, believing in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is a gospel issue. Because if you don't, believe that Christ died in our place as a, as a sacrifice of atonement for us, then you don't believe the gospel, because that is that is the gospel, that Christ died for sinners. It, it, it's a gospel issue. If you take it away, it's you don't have the gospel anymore, or you can't say that someone who doesn't believe that uh, really is a Christian, in the same sense that we would say a, a person is a Christian. On the flip side of that, you might say something like, uh, infant baptism is not a gospel issue. Uh, if you say that, you would be affirming that whether or not one agrees with infant baptism, it, it doesn't make a person a Christian or not. You know, we don't believe uh, our Baptist brothers and sisters, are. You know, we, we may disagree with them about infant baptism, but we, we believe they're Christians because they believe in the atonement, they believe in Christ. And it's a secondary issue. So it's not a gospel issue. It's not that important that we would say, oh, they're, they're not believers at all because they have sacrificed the gospel in that belief. So you see what I'm saying with gospel issue. The birth of Isaac is a gospel issue. It is absolutely important. If this birth does not occur, then the gospel is affected. And when I say gospel, I mean... The good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. The good news of what Christ did in his life and his death. The birth of Isaac is imperative to that. And I'm going to show you how. Uh, You've got to have some knowledge to understand this of of what theologians call the history of redemption. You know, God didn't just uh, say around 1 B.C., you know, 0 B.C., of course... That does say Christ was before Christ. Or, anyway, God didn't just say at that time, say, look, you know, the world is a mess. And, and look at all those poor sinful people down there. They need they need me to do something for them. So I'm going to send my son down, and he can die for their sins. Uh, he didn't just come up with that off the cuff in 1 B.C. or 0 B.C. or Whatever time it was when Christ was actually born, it was a, a plan that was hatched in eternity somewhere and that has that was executed throughout history there were there are stages to it there is a, an unveiling uh, theologians call it sometimes the progress of redemption to get from uh, mankind falling into sin in the garden to the birth of Christ, God worked throughout history to bring this event, the birth, of, the birth and death of Christ, to fruition. And we see the first revelation of it right in the Garden of Eden after mankind fell into sin in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It says there, when, when Adam and Eve have fallen, they've eaten the forbidden fruit, uh, he makes pronouncements to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman, to Adam and Eve. And what he says to the serpent is very interesting. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this is that verse. The next verse is really the important one. But that verse is not just telling us you know, why snakes don't have legs. You know, the, he says, you're going to eat dust, Satan. You know, we'll we use that term, eat my dust. You know, if you're in a race and somebody's behind you, they're eating your dust. You're winning and they're getting a mouthful of dust because you know, the dust is kicked up whether you're in a car or whether you're running really fast. You know, Eat my dust. God is saying, Satan, you're going to eat my dust. You're not going to win. You're going to to lose. And then verse 15 tells us how he's going to lose. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This alliance that's happened here, I'm breaking that up, God says. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That gets played out in the first chapters of Genesis. He... Now, we're talking about groups of people, but all of a sudden it turns singular. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that is a prophecy of the birth of Christ. There's going to be a Redeemer come who is going to crush the head of Satan. There's going to be a Redeemer mourn who's going to come and destroy his work. He's going to make him eat dust for the last time. So God promises a Redeemer and the birth of Isaac is a stage in that process of bringing the Redeemer into the world. And Satan opposes God's plan. We've already seen how he has tried to short-circuit the birth of Isaac, you know, even from chapter 12. They, uh, Abraham and Isaac go off to Egypt, and he says, oh, she's my sister, you know, trying to protect himself. He falls into a, the sin of lying there, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh has got her in his harem. Now, what would happen uh, if, uh, if she, you know, if Abraham and, Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah don't stay married because she's in Pharaoh's harem, uh, or if uh, God does actually deliver the promise? How, how do we know whose child it is, and how, how are Abraham and Sarah going to even get together? And then we see. Uh, you know, them getting derailed by the whole Hagar and Ishmael incident. Lord, we can make this happen through natural means. We can get a substitute in here, a Hagar, and, and uh, have another child in another way. No, God, God says, no, that's not, how, that's not how it's working. And then last week we saw the whole episode of Abimelech, which was much like the episode with Pharaoh, where Abimelech takes her to be his wife, because again, Abraham has in, fallen into that sin of lying. What if Abimelech uh, touches Sarah? You know, it's very clear there that Abimelech comes out saying, I didn't touch her. I didn't touch her at all. And, And God wants to make that clear that this child that's going to be born within the year that he told Abraham was going to happen in chapter 18, that Abimelech had nothing to do with that. This is God's doing. And so Satan has been trying to derail it all along. And so here we find that God finally delivers on the promise. God intervenes. He would not allow Abimelech to touch her. He intervenes to make sure that this promised one is born, even though Satan's trying to derail the whole process. And then, of course, through Isaac, Jacob is born. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Those 12 uh, sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, they become a people, a nation. And of course, as Romans 9, I believe it's verse 6, tells us that one of the great things about the Jewish people is that the Messiah comes from them. So if Isaac is not born, the line does not go on and there's no people into whom Christ can be born. You know, of course, there's a whole, whole lot of history that I'm leaving out you know, with Moses and, and the giving of the law and the temple and, and all that it points to. The, the sacrifice of the Messiah, the, the sacrificial system, points to all that. Can't go into that right now. But it's the history of redemption. And, and it happens in stages over time. And the birth of Isaac is a watershed moment in that process of God saving us from our sins. Satan doesn't like it. He's trying to oppose it every step of the way. And we can go throughout the whole history and, and show you how Satan opposes it. Revelation 12 has a picture of it, this cosmic battle that's going to go on until the end of time between God and Satan. But we have a picture of it there. It's a very uh, graphic picture. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, I believe this woman symbolizes the church, not just the church of the New Testament, but the Old Testament church as well. Israel, the people of God throughout all times symbolized by this woman. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven, behold, a great red dragon, that symbolizes Satan, with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. and And those are the fallen angels with him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So Satan, throughout history, has been trying to devour the Redeemer, whether it comes from devouring Isaac before he's ever born or any of the stages throughout the redemptive history where he has tried to short-circuit God's plan. But, it tells us, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus, the Redeemer. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And that's the church in the days in which we live. Well, Satan wants to devour the Redeemer. Remember when Jesus was born? Herod. Herod came along and he, he wanted to murder Christ. He was an agent of Satan. It was his work. And Satan thought he finally succeeded on the cross. He finally got somebody to put Jesus to death, but God turned it all around on him. And it was the perfect plan. God turned it around on him, and he took people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who belonged to Satan, and he rescued them. He redeemed them. He bought them with a price through the sacrifice of Christ, through the sacrifice of the Redeemer. And they are the Lord's now. They no longer belong to Satan. So he has looted Satan's kingdom of his people. They are the Lord's now, and this Redeemer will return one day and will ultimately crush Satan's head and save all his people. Satan will eat dust. That should make your heart laugh. If Isaac isn't born, then our redemption doesn't progress. So the short answer. Our salvation depends on this birth. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. I love how... uh, verse 1 and 2, reiterate how God did this thing. He promised it. He's delivered it. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. God's plan of redemption will not be thwarted by Satan. Isn't that awesome? We have an awesome God. The nature of this birth. Now, not only does the fact that it's important make us rejoice, but the way that this birth occurs, the nature of it, points us to the to the wonderful salvation that we have. Back in chapter twelve, God called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees in Haran, and promised that He would make him into a great nation. and Abraham was seventy five when that happened. Now he's a hundred years old. Why did God wait so long? Why did he delay? I mean, we could go back further. Why did he promise something in Genesis 3.15 that didn't come about till thousands of years later? Why the slow delay, the process? Why does God wait? Well, it shows us, it's, it's, it's delayed to it show us the nature of our salvation. Salvation is miraculous and it is by grace. It's not by works. Salvation always comes from God in this way, where, where all hope in human means is gone. You look, at, you look at Abraham. He's 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old. It's a miraculous birth. And, and the, the text before us today uh, hammers that home to us. Look at how, how she uh, it, it's all expressed. Uh, it, it talks about verse 2. A, uh, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Um, verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah says in verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Not only were they old... She was barren. I mean, this was a physical impossibility for her to have this child, and yet she does. And it shows that it is all God. God did it all. He is working out His salvation for us. He is is providing salvation for us, not through human means, but with His own arm. You know, the prophets often say that. God says to the prophets, I saw that there was no one to save, so I... I bared my right arm. I saved them with my right arm. I did it. Romans 9 tells us, it's not the one who wills, it's not the one who runs, but it's God who has mercy. So this birth is a miraculous birth, and it shows us that, yes, salvation is a miraculous thing. It it, it is something that God has done and that God gives. He gave this child to Abraham and uh, Sarah. It was something, a gracious gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. We've just seen in how many ways they sinned and that that they were worshiping other gods, false gods, Joshua tells us, back in Ur of the Chaldees. God did this thing, and he did it graciously. And that's the nature of salvation. Now, someone said to me the other day, in a conversation about something completely different, But, uh, you know, it was one of those things that someone says, and you want to stop and address that issue, but it wasn't appropriate for me to do so. But this person told me that they were trying to be a Christian, and were trying to be a Christian. And it got me thinking about how often people say this. And I, I did a search on the Internet, and I found an example. Maya Angelou, the poet passed away not too long ago, and I know she's a national treasure and I don't mean to attack her, but she said exactly what I'm talking about. She said in an interview, she said, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think, already? You've already got it? I'm working at it, which means that I try to be as kind and fair and generous and respectful and courteous to every human being. I try to treat everybody like I want to be treated. What she's talking about is not Christianity. You cannot make yourself a Christian. No one has ever made himself or herself a Christian. You hear many people say, I'm trying to be a Christian, or you may hear someone, I'm trying to become a Christian, or I hope I'm a Christian, or I'm working on it. Such statements are indications that the person doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. It's not your works that makes you a Christian. She says, I'm try- I, t- t- I treat everyone nicely. You know, I'm trying to be a Christian. I- I'm trying to be fair and generous and respectful. Well, that just makes you a moral person, which she was very moral, very virtuous, a good person in, in many ways. But that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is saved by grace, not by their good works, not how nice they treat other people. They're sinners who could not save themselves, and God had to intervene miraculously and by his grace and pluck them out of Satan's kingdom and bring them into his own family, all by his work, all by his grace. God makes you a Christian through what he's done, through Christ on the cross. And it comes to us by faith. That's the vehicle through which we apprehend this gracious gift of salvation that God gives us, that God gives us. See, there's no joy in trying to make yourself a Christian. And that's that's why a lot of so-called Christians don't have any joy. They're working so hard trying to be a Christian, and the only joy they have is is when they're successful and, and what they really have achieved is self-righteousness and the joy of feeling that you're better than everybody else. You see, because it is self-righteousness. If you're trying to be a Christian, you are doing certain things and you are trying to be righteous. And when you succeed at that, you have self-righteousness. You're the one that's made yourself righteous and As you're successful at that, you look out upon those who are not as successful as you and it makes you feel good about yourself. That's what the Pharisees were like. That's not Christianity. Christians are those who recognize that they're lost, that they're sinners, that they're broken, that they can't do it themselves. They need God's intervention. They need God's grace and they cry out to Him for mercy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Don't, uh, it's not work really hard, and you exalt yourself, and God says, hey, you're pretty good, so I'll accept you. That's not Christianity. So the birth of Isaac, its supernatural nature, its miraculous nature, its gracious nature, points to our salvation. And we should rejoice in that, that we can say, look, God knew me at my worst, and he intervened. When there was no hope, he came in. That's something to laugh about. That's something to say, that is so unbelievable that God would save me. Because it is. That he would save any of us is, is amazing. Because we don't earn it, and we certainly don't deserve it. So joy this morning. I hope you can find the joy of salvation. Not the joy of trying to be a Christian, but the joy of, of knowing uh, the gracious gift of salvation that God has miraculously provided for us. When there's no grace, no miracle, or no supernatural intervention in our lives, then there's not going to be much joy there. So, what's your joy in this morning? Is it in the Lord and in this salvation that He's provided, or are you pursuing other things in this world—trivial things, new car, new? Bigger bank account, relationships, whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis gives us a a great perspective. He says that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily Pleased. Let's pray together.